Hey everybody, this is episode 48 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Hello, soapboxers. Today I'm talking with dancer, choreographer, and artistic director, Shali Comerford. Before I jump into the conversation with Shali, I wanted to tell you that just like last week, I'm featuring an anonymous question from a listener at the end of this episode. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered on the podcast, click on the link in the show notes or go to our website and click on Submit Your Cues on the menu bar. Today's question comes from Community Seeker. Okay, so I've only spent about three hours total with Shali Comerford, and I am now a huge fan. You'll hear in our conversation how she talks about her hopes and dreams for her company, her dedication to her dancers, the movement language and philosophy that provide the foundation for the work they create together, and her dedication to community activism as a natural offshoot of her creative work. There's so much to inspire you in this episode. Also, mark your calendars for the annual Shali Danceworks fundraiser on Friday, November 2nd at the Reality Ministries Ballroom in Durham. See the Shali Danceworks website for more information. Shali Comerford is an Irish and Native American dancer, choreographer, and the artistic director of Shali Danceworks based in Durham, North Carolina. She is a graduate of Holland University with a master's degree in visual and performing arts. Her choreography and commissions have been presented throughout the United States and abroad. The company's success has taken them from performances and residencies in New York City to Germany, England, Israel, and Japan. Since establishing Durham, North Carolina as their home base in 2014, the company has celebrated touring with the North Carolina Dance Festival, performing at the prestigious American Dance Festival, and presenting two evening-length works as showcased artists of Durham Independent Dance Artists. Their recent premiere of I Promise was listed by Byron Woods as one of five exceptional dances from 2017. Here we go. Hi, Shali. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about your company, Shali Danceworks. What was the initial impulse to form a company? I think that I felt from a pretty early age that until I was prepared to dance with the choreographers that I admired, that I was going to create my own work so that I could kind of continue researching and preparing myself for that aesthetic. So I think it really came from a huge admiration for about five particular um, companies, choreographers that I had my heart set on that I absolutely knew I was not ready to walk into an audition and nail those jobs, but that that was kind of the vein of movement that really moved me and inspired me. So it kind of, I would research with it in the studio um, and that kind of became pulling people in and starting to make work. But I could even take it back further to childhood where I used to pull my little brother and my little sisters in to create my shows. So (laughs) are you the oldest? I'm second to oldest. Yeah. I pulled my older sister in too. (laughs) That is a a sibling's prerogative. Yes. (laughs) To use, use what you have. Exactly. Exactly. So you started the company around 2007 and then in 2014, you settled in Durham 
And then in 2016, you became full-time. Could you tell us what full-time means? Yeah. So um, before I kind of, especially with all my travels, I just, when I was in town, I would get my group together and we would make a show and then we would kind of be about our way and then see if it got picked up to come back together for another show or not. And this was a decision to actually focus a lot more on movement quality and the um, like movement aesthetic that I really wanted to use as the language to speak. So what I realized was it was becoming more and more important to me to spend more time with my dancers so that we could share a language and we could share a passion for that language too. So it really was an interest in wanting to develop the language and also wanting to really strengthen the work that I was creating. And well, what does that look like on a weekly basis even? Right now we uh, rehearse anywhere at the minimum two times a week and the maximum is four times a week. Um, and it's generally about three hours each time we meet for a rehearsal. And also all of the dancers train with me on a weekly basis. So I have a pretty big teaching schedule um, and they all fit whatever classes in they can to, to keep working throughout the week. And so they're committed to you for an entire season? Yeah. And what does a season look like for you? Every year is a bit different. Last year, we had our first tour to New York City twice, and that was really remarkable. Um, We toured also to Charlotte. This year, we have a really large-scale installation that we're preparing for that will happen at the Fruit in January. So that's keeping us more local because there's a lot of different artists that will be involved in that project. So we have a couple of tours with the North Carolina Dance Festival. We're performing in Asheville and Greensboro. Um, We're doing a a few different Third Friday events. Um, We have one coming up in October for Proximic Media. And then we'll have our annual fundraiser in November. And then we'll most likely be starting a new project next spring. So there's a lot of creation happening right now. Uh, We're looking forward to hopefully eventually touring E Pluribus, which was the piece that we premiered this past June. But until we get this piece kind of under our belt with all these different moving parts, it's kind of keeping us more in Durham this season. So I'm curious about what it means to you to be a leader, because your name is on the company and I think it can be challenging as a leader. The the buck stops with you. You have to set the vision. You're doing all of these different things for the benefit of your company and now the dancers who have committed to you. What is your leadership philosophy? I want to say that it feels like, I think maybe it goes a little bit back to childhood again. There's this very different. I'm really experiencing a huge shift in myself. When I was a pickup company, I I thoroughly enjoyed just momentarily <clears throat> being the choreographer and enjoying the dancers that I'm with and really um, bringing together our <clears throat> more immediate wow moments. And now what it feels like is an investment in them as movers, an investment in their futures and their careers. Um, some of them are probably going to be lifers and some of them may be here for a year or two with me. And I think it's important to me to feel like we're sharing a vision. It's something we talk a lot about too, to make sure that it feels like we're all a part of something bigger. We're all a part of a whole. And that's kind of how the company is structured too. I do bring in movement and I do bring in my ideas, 
but there's a real sense of collaboration that's central to the ethos of what we do and the way we think. And um, I, we love bringing in questions. They love questioning me and the questions that they bring in usually changes the choreography, deepens the choreography. So in some ways, I would say the group experience that we have together in, also encourages leadership in them. But for me, I've got the whole business end of it. And even though that's not something I was ever drawn to, I think that what shifted in me is my desire to to fund them, my desire to let the revenue streams flow, um, to really honor all of the time that they spend in the rehearsal as well as time that we spend on stage. So that's kind of a big push for the company this year. And I think it keeps me going when I'm sleep deprived and writing grants at 2 a.m. and (laughs) and planning rehearsals and wearing as many hats as I can till we really find that niche for us that creates that stream where that's possible for them. I've been told several times that it's not possible. But at the same time, I think my desire is to do the impossible because I feel that it's such a worthy journey. It's such a worthy struggle and they are so worth it. And what do you think is worthy about it? I think that if I am to like just succumb to the world doesn't no longer works that way, then I'm kind of maybe becoming agreeable with the idea that that artists are only going to be project like based, that artists artists are only going to be funded for when they are entertaining people on the stage, as opposed to all of the work, all of the research that goes in behind the scenes. And I think that all of that work that we do behind the scenes it changes what we're able to bring to the community and it changes the depth that we bring to the community too. So I feel like it's worthy to me in the sense that it's something that, that I don't mind fighting for and I don't mind um, hitting a few walls if it means getting more creative with the way I'm thinking about it as a business. I don't think many people understand this, that artists are right now only paid for performance and not for rehearsal and how many hours of rehearsal that it takes to make those performances. And that is work. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you're doing for fun. I mean, yeah. it is fun yeah. and it is gratifying, but it is truly work. We're yeah. going to work with each other. And there, when you think about it that way, it is mm, – it's hard to swallow the fact that there is this general assumption that we're not paid to work. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think maybe a little bit a part of the philosophy too of choreographers or dance companies or dancers around this level where <clears throat> we're not exactly emerging anymore, but we're not exactly booking large opera houses either. So there's this like real gap for us to kind of figure out um, until we get those larger funding sources or until we get that kind of prominency to our name, um, trying to figure out how to bridge that gap and how to really make it um, something that we can shift. It's it's a conversation I think a lot of artists are having in Durham right now is how to create that sustainability. And I feel like if we're able to bring our creativity to it, I've had some, I'm actually speaking at a leadership conference on next Monday at my university. And it was incredible. We had a phone conference, the the few of us that, that will be speaking together. And we all come from different 
angles of the arts. For some of us, it's arts administration or curation or uh, dramaturgy or all these things. And it was remarkable to have the this refreshing conversation with them of being like, okay, we've all graduated now. What? Where have we ended up? And to hear all of these different perspectives, knowing that when you're in a realm that's like maybe a bit more commercial, how much of a revenue stream she's managing. She's like, oh, you guys, there's all this money here. And then, you know, in the the dance and theater, we're like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> you know? Money where? Right. Yes. So I, I feel like I'm really excited to, to chat more with them about cross-pollinating with different disciplines about like, I'd like to learn more about how people think outside of my field and see if there's ways to bring that in. Because I think sustainability is an important word right now because everyone's felt, you know, a bit on eggshells with the way the administration has been. Is the NEA going to be unfunded? Like, Mm -hmm. so there's this sense of let's find a solid ground um, because we want to create a future for the arts and we want to create a future for the people that have a voice. And it's just, it's so incredibly important in so many different ways. And I think that if we can bring our creativity to the stage, we could possibly bring more creativity to our finances. Yes. One idea, and and this is, I think, a little bit what you're talking about, is for us to go where the money is and Mm. talk to the people who have Mm. the money. Mm. Because I think we're all talking to each other. Nobody has any money. So we don't – that's not even in our – in our imagination, yeah. like that, that it exists, that we could attain it. Yeah. And so talking to the people for whom thousands of dollars is a small drop mm-hmm. in the bucket, those are the people that we need to be connecting mm-hmm. with because they have resources. And so expanding our ideas about collaboration and partnerships and to beyond just other artists, mm-hmm. but maybe thinking that there are people who are not artists who would like to participate in the work that we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's what really got me excited about the the Bamboo Wind Project. It was this idea that we would bring in artists that are coming from different genres and that we would be cross-pollinating our ideas and we would be cross-pollinating our audiences. And that could, in fact, create a different kind of infrastructure. So, um, I'm, I'm really, it really got me excited to just think about it in a completely different way because in the background of all of this, I'm thinking about my company and how to sustain a future or to create one. And this idea of it takes a village is just so absolutely true. Yes, yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah. In our pre-interview phone conversation, you used a phrase that I really, it really piqued my interest and you talked about trying to find the uniqueness that generates revenue. Mm. What do you think is the uniqueness of your company? Well, for sure, I think it's the people. It's a pretty special special group of just in, uh, incredibly, I think, willing, risk-taking, authentic, very individualistic, very unique, each-to-themselves kind of group. So we kind of represent a collective of others, we all um, come from kind of different training, different backgrounds, um, different cultures, and yet we have this huge passion for like humanity. And, and I think that's one of the things that grounds us. And the way that we work is with the movement language Shaga, which is basically based on my research from graduate school all the way through 
to Israel and working with Ohad and the Bacheva Dance Company and their language, Gaga. And it, it's kind of become this way for us to continue to research language that brings us together in ways that we we all understand, we all share. And it kind of gives permission for dance to speak as opposed to just ideas, mm-hmm. where when we're finding movement, we're, fi- we're sharing emotion, we're sharing sensations. And that sensation is like the basis of our experience in life is, is sensation. That's what we all have. And that's what our capacity is. And giving dance an opportunity to speak without always being, um, I want to say influenced by ideas. I think for all of us, we understand that that's allowing something to pass through us. It's not something that we exert and we teach that way. And we speak that way. And we treat each other that way in the studio. And we all share the belief that what we do in there has the potential to affect once we leave the studio. And so everyone kind of has different ways that they're already kind of very active in the community. One of the ways, of course, was when we worked with Reality Ministries and um, did the, the their talent show this past year and um, just have an incredible group of people that are interested in different populations and that have kind of, I'm going to say, um, a sense of cause behind why they're doing what they're doing. I don't think any of us are there just because we want to be. I think that we are movers because we must be. Mm. And I think that that's also how we feel about what we say about our movement. So in that way, I I do feel that there's um, a really great possibility for us to allow outreach to be a big part of how we continue forward. And I think it's something that we're all interested in. So let's talk about Gaga and Shaga. Could could we start with Gaga and explain that to people <laughs> yeah. who are unfamiliar and yes. then transition into the other? Yeah. Okay. Because it's not Lady Gaga. Everybody <laughs> yes. always asks. They're like, oh, should I bring heels to class? <laughs> um, so Gaga is uh, the movement language that was developed by Ohad Naharin. Um, he just stepped down um, recently, but he uh, was the artistic director of the Bacheva Dance Company. He was a dancer with the Graham Company in America before he went um, and accepted the artistic director position. He was researching a lot of pain in his body and researching, meaning moving from a place of questioning, moving from, can I move with pain? Can I move without pain? Is there pleasure in pain? So it came from a place of inquiry. And at the time, the company was dancing um, and training with ballet. And as uh, he would be gently moving on the side, kind of navigating his own body, the dancers were really curious, "What, what are you doing? So everyone wanted to learn this way of moving. Uh, it was very unusual, not something that you would generally see in a in a dance studio for a professional company. We usually train and dance by form, but this was training and dance by sensation and by inquiry and questions. So it was really a pathway to move from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. So that's what I was studying when I was invited to go to Israel um, in their very first inaugural teacher training program. And what I have done since then is I've allowed it to stay an active inquiry. So there is a very specific language that you use in a Gaga class and very specific kind of ways that you might approach the the class experience. One is for people, one is for dancers. Um, and there's, there's a bit of a methodology that I think they wanted to develop when they wanted to train more teachers. And what I really felt deeply for myself is that 
I, I love the language so much, but I'm not going to do it any service in terms of how much I love it if I just repeat mm-hmm. the the language that was already created. So for me, it's still a very active form of inquiry, um, but very much rooted in, in what I learned from Ohad and all of the teachers in Israel. And it's also very connected to uh, a curriculum that I started designing when I was in grad school, which was called the empowerment of identity and just allowing yourself to really be present inside of the movement and very much uh, with an interest in um, healing and very strong interest in um, how to develop empowerment in people through movement. And uh, so it was just made a perfect synthesis. And even when I was in Israel, I'll never forget Ohad said, it looks like you've been doing this your whole life. And I was like, you know, I feel like I have. It's just an incredibly synergistic thing. But also, I'm, I'm not going to claim to call it Gaga because I, I need to go off script. I need to go all the way to the right, all the way to the left, all the way up and down to kind of just keep it alive. And it also allows me to develop it with my dancers, with their knowledge base, and allow it to grow from what their own treasures and wisdom are so that it stays um, very real and true for them. Could you help me understand a little bit more about Shaga by talking about how you might use it to develop a piece? Oh, sure. So, um, okay. So the the easiest way, just in case you've seen it or anyone's seen it, there's an opening of I Promise, which was the piece that we premiered at the Fruit last January uh, or December, rather. At the very beginning of the piece, all the dancers are in a line and they are actually doing Shaga as soon as the lights come on. They are focusing on the sensation of their spine which is where your nervous system, all of all of those sensations are. And they're um, focusing on the idea of letting go to what keeps them from feeling it, which in emotional terms can be fear, can be all the things that block us from having an authentic experience of ourselves or of other people. So the idea is really like, I would tell them like, this is you dying to the moment. You're literally entering your backspace, which is your history. You're literally connecting to your nervous system, which fires all the things that give us what we need to be safe out in the world in some ways, but what takes us away from our bodies as movers. Um, So they're just doing this very delicate movement, listening to their own bodies. And that's how the whole piece begins to unfold. Um, Now, later in the piece, there are some more um, explosive energy. So there's a lot of different kinds of movement qualities we explore. And some of the movement in the more explosive sections have to do with sensation of allowing yourself to snap into different modalities, snap into different emotions, snap into different forms. And that comes from creating an availability in the body so that you're ready to jump. Even if you're standing still, you're ready to fly, even if you're laying on the earth. So it has a lot to do with kind of how we play with our imagination so that our bodies become more available and more versatile. Mm-hmm. One of the phrases that we do really Um, what you're reaching for inside of it is maybe connecting more to the space of the ribs. And it might look a little bit like an arabesque, but it's more about stretching from a certain part of the body and then maybe grabbing all of the muscles and the flesh of the back. And then, you know, so it has to do with not so much looking like me or the choreography, but really the task of creating sensation in these certain areas in their body. And in rehearsal, do you also introduce 
words that have some sort of weight to them? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think that when we go into creating a piece, there's a lot of different ways that we start to develop material. Sometimes it can come through conversations. It can come through images. It can come through, it can come from a Shaga class. That's how we warm up. And afterwards I'm like, what were these things that really moved people today? Because what I see when I'm guiding the class is I'll just see what I call these wow moments. And it's these moments where they've really had a breakthrough. And sometimes we'll take that breakthrough as a starting point. Um, so the dancers get a chance to kind of lead that too. Like, here's what I was reaching for. And sometimes it's the wow moment for them was I was just so frustrated because I was trying to break a habit. I feel like I always move this way. And so bumping up against that frustration allowed this new emotion or this new movement to pass through my body. We kind of call it spirit guys. Sometimes when you really feel the energy starting to move, it really charges you. And it's, one of the ways of being playful about always challenging ourselves to leave leave our habits is that that's how we restore tension and, and atrophy and injury in the body. And so all of those things, all of our inquiries become a part of the piece. And a lot of the inquiries that I'm looking at thematically in the piece, I'll bring into what we research inside of Shaga. So there's a lot of overlap. This seems like really deep work in that you have to have a lot of trust in yeah, your company. So yeah. I, I can see why you would want to... S- to spend time committed as a company to this work yeah. and to each other. So it's it's a movement language, but it sounds also like it's a philosophy. For sure. For sure. It's very connected to a philosophy. How would you articulate that? Um, I would say the, the more we can move, the more we can say. Um, the more we allow ourselves to bump up against the things that hinder us, the more alive we'll be. The more we allow ourselves to feel everything, the more I feel like we develop the capacity to choose how we want to feel. And it allows us to also heal our bodies in very deep ways. Like one of the things that was pretty magical to me, just in terms of working with injured dancers is having I have one special story of a particular dancer who was my student for several years. She was approaching her senior year and she finally got cast in the principal role of doing this point piece, this ballet piece. And um, lo and behold, a month before the show, she falls and she has a terrible injury. She gets put in a boot and she's devastated. Mm. And so I just, I had, you know, been back from Israel just maybe for a year or two. And I was like, well, let's, this is a chance to really play with this. So I, I pulled her into the studio and I had her do all of these things that I'm guiding the class through. I was like, do that. Imagine moving from your atoms. Imagine moving from your molecules. Imagine going deeper and working deep inside the boot. And, and she healed herself and was out of the boot and got to perform on stage. It was, it blew my mind because of course, I had my theories, my philosophies, my wishes, my hopes, my dreams, but I've gotten the opportunity to put it the, put it to the test um, and to see really positive results. And I'm, I've had to do it with myself too. <laughs> when I'm facing an injury, it's like, okay, now it's time to see if this really works. And one of the things that's important about working with injury and the opportunity that it gives you is that whenever you're dealing with injury, you're also dealing with the fear of that injury. And it's very connected and both things have to be tackled when you're really trying to do the work, um, which means that allowing the emotions to come up 
a lot of times we block it because we all try our best to, you know, put a good face forward. <clears throat> but truly, when you just allow it to pass through you, it's a physical sensation. We can cry with our eyes, of course, but we also can cry inside of our hearts. And you can just allow this to, to move through you and it becomes something else. And a lot of times, even if we're listening to an injury site, when we really go from that place of listening, it will guide you somewhere else in your body. So it's really like opening things up, letting things flow, um, which I think is is very symbolic to the way we get pent up in life. And it can be hard to let things flow when we've, you know, found a block. But a lot of times, you know, giving yourself permission to listen to that block gives you the solution or gives you the change that you need. So we kind of approach it all as something that's welcome. And how do you think this letting go of this flow and this connection to sensation, how does it affect what people see on the stage from the audience? What does it do to the dance? I think that it gives people an opportunity to maybe share a sense of humanity with the dancers. I think what I've heard from a lot of people is that sense of just really feeling like they can go with the dancer, even if they're not sure where they're going. So maybe it creates a little bit of a sense of, of trust inside of whatever narrative is unfolding on stage, uh, maybe a deeper sense of compassion because we all share flesh. We all share that same journey and we allow that to be very present inside of the work. We don't really hide humanity at all. We, we kind of expose that we don't even take ourselves too seriously, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I want to talk about the activism. You mentioned it earlier in our conversation, but I know that you consider, or I think that you consider your activism and community work as an extension of the work that mm-hmm. you do as Shelly Dance Works. And could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Sure. So I think for us, activism has taken many shapes and forms. So I'm going to give a couple of, of examples because I expect it will continue to do that as we allow the things that feel the most relevant to just kind of spark our passion to want to connect and reach out and help. Um, and that's come from things as simple as because we often rehearse at Ninth Street Dance and there are um, a lot of homeless people that stay at the church across the street. Uh, because of that, I have lots of friends who happen to be homeless. And after chatting with one of my friends, I had gone back up to uh, rehearsal and mention, oh gosh, I really wish that I could buy her some clothes. Like she's been without undergarments for several months now, blah, blah, blah. And one of the my apprentices was saying, well, you know, I just got a gift from my father to help me pay rent because I was struggling last month. And he said, just pay it forward. Here's an extra hundred. And when you feel the moment is right, pay it forward. And suddenly we're taking my friend shopping. It was one of the best, you know, experiences in my life. It's something I always wanted to do. And uh, it was just loads of fun and a, and a beautiful way to just participate in a moment that had just happened. Um, and then in other ways too, a couple of my dancers have been, had some kind of exposure or I guess connection to gun violence. And I um, absolutely did <laughs> losing my best childhood best friend. So when March for Our Lives was unveiling um, and they were having one in Raleigh and uh, we, we were kind of waiting to see if one was going to happen in Durham. And when it wasn't happening, I realized that 
I really wanted Durham to represent. And not only that, but I wanted the people that maybe couldn't get to Raleigh to have a place to contribute to the conversation and um, to share the cause. So um, I thought it would be quite small. Honestly, I thought maybe I'd get 20 people to show up. I had no idea we'd have over 2000 people. Oh my word. Yeah. So, uh, so anyways, I told the company, I was like, I think I'm going to go for this if I do it. Cause I was terrified. I've never done anything like that before. I was like, will you volunteer? And they all said, absolutely. So, um, and even Durham Short Runs, who has done lots of t-shirts for us before, they donated t-shirts for us so that people could identify us as staff. And and it was just an incredible experience and an incredible way for us to come together and share some tears, some stories, and some activism on how we wanted to handle that situation. And that's continued on. Like some of my dancers are still very active in that cause. Some of them have gone on to other causes. Some of them are really active in in campaigning right now with the upcoming election. And Um, And then I'll give one more example, and that would be something that's really near and dear to my heart, as well as one of my other dancers' heart, John Blanco, and that is that we have a huge passion for the special needs community. And that was why we wanted to volunteer to create um, dances that would go on stage at DPAC for the Reality Ministries Talent Show. This is also a very special thing for me because it was tied to my thesis and my graduate work which was bringing visibility to difference on stage because the stage creates a platform of reverie. And I was ready for the idea of reverie to be exposed to things that were maybe not norm. Mm. So whether it's queer identity or different, you know, races or different abilities or different backgrounds and just like Bamboo Wind bringing together artists from different economic backgrounds. So really allowing difference to be visible and really allowing that to also be celebrated. So it's been, um, it's, it's been an incredible experience to just kind of have our eyes open. And when there are opportunities for us to connect, we've all just been jumping in. When you think ahead and you are talking with your ensemble and you talk about the vision that you have for the company, how would you describe that? Oh, such a happy thought for me to think about because that's like I'm, I'm reaching for it, really, really reaching for it. So my ideal uh, for the company, it would start with our training schedule, just being able to to train together every day, Monday through Friday, like a proper job, and you know to have technique, to have shaga, and then to have our our creative time, um, our rep time, and then to have uh, a kind of a bigger maybe more regular outreach programs for the community and then to have a proper proper touring opportunities and that's very important to me just being an artist that has traveled all over the world all of the things that i learned from that travel were invaluable and i felt like i could bring them home and it always made me feel like i had more to give so um i would love for us to have more opportunities where we can go um, outside of the community, whether it's the U.S. or abroad, to kind of to not only perform but to also stay connected to that global community and that exchange of information and knowledge that you get when you travel. Um, so I would love for us to have like a very strong community presence, but also an opportunity to to go out and to bring it home again. So I want to talk about two more things. One is what's next for you. And the other one is the fundraiser that you have in November. 
which would you like to talk about? Let's do fundraiser first. Okay. I'm excited about it. So last year was our very first annual fundraiser and it, it was fantastic. We brought in a lot of different community artists and um, and we brought in Pierce Freelon, who at the time was running for mayor, who was our fabulous speaker. This year, we've got the same theme, which is called Revolutionaries in the Dark. We're going to have um, a different a lineup of performers and a different lineup of speakers still kind of following up that theme of bringing together people who see art and activism as something that's hand in hand and really shining a light on people that have been doing that here. And um, so kind of, I'm excited because it's it's a way to, to support the company, but it's also a way to support our overlying goals, which is how art can make a difference, how it impacts people, how it impacts communities, how much we cherish that art stays a thriving part of the community. So we're really excited about that. We're going to share a little excerpt of the piece that's upcoming, um, the Bamboo Wind piece, which is visually stunning because we are finally working with elements of set design and props and something that we've never actually done before. We've had very simple set design and very, very simple um, pieces. So it's a bit more elaborate, a lot more moving parts. Um, So we're really excited about that. It'll be the first Friday, November 2nd at Reality Ministries Ballroom. Is Bamboo Wind the next big thing for the company? Yeah. So um, we are traveling to Asheville this month for the North Carolina Dance Festival. And then we have one more tour to Greensboro. But this is the newest newest evening length work that we're creating. Um, it'll run for four evenings in January the 17th through the 20th. The thing that's the most exciting to me about this project is just the cross-collaboration that's coming from working with so many different artists that are coming from different backgrounds and different genres. We have three remarkable photographers. We've got an incredible bamboo forest that is being um, uh, installed into the fruit. So when audience members come in, they're going to get a chance to kind of roam through this forest that has um, film and photography and movement happening all together um, while our composer is playing. And they'll end up at where the the evening length show will happen at the stage. And then the show kind of begins unveiling from there. We have actors that are going to be reading bits of the poem. And so there's a lot of different pieces bouncing off of each other. We've got a costume designer who's creating, uh, which I've never had the chance to have a proper budget and proper materials for a costume designer. Um, So we're really excited about this because the, the project got, fully funded recently by the Mary Duke Biddle Foundation. Oh, wonderful. So this oh, that's will, great news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's been incredible to um, be able to actually do what I say I want to do, which is not ask people to work for free, <laughs> right? but have a budget and, and bring artists together for a way to express how they are reading. Um, the whole, the whole premise of the piece is based on a poem that was written or a seven canto poem written by Coke Ariel who's a local to Durham. And basically we all have the opportunity to bounce off of our own readings of the poem, how we see the idea of desire through um, longing, 
and and through through reaching and struggle. And I, I guess I want to say through like pain and anger and all of the shades of longing that lasts between the desire to reach something that's kind of maybe unreachable. Mm. So um, it kind of, it has a, a great human theme to it. And it's been really fun to create that way with my dancers because we've had wonderful discussions about how differently we see all of that and we're allowing it to be inside of this world. Mm-hmm. So you get to see lots of different kinds of relationships unfold throughout the piece. And that, for me, that's really exciting because I feel like that's very reflective of the diversity of Durham and the the inclusivity of, of different perspectives happening within, you know, what would seem just like a poetic inquiry of love. Right, right. Okay. So now I have another question. <laughs> So take me into rehearsal. Okay. You have this conversation, you have these conversations with your dancers about how you all see these things differently, but how do you translate that into making a thing Mm. on its feet? Yeah. That's always kind of the, um, (laughs) that's always the freak out moment for me. Um, I always think I try to cheer my up when Pina Bausch says every time she starts a piece, she's feel like she feels like she doesn't know what she's doing. Or when Fellini wrote eight and a half, he felt like he was having a writer's block. I want to say, I feel like I'm walking off the ledge of a cliff every time I go into rehearsal mm. because I, I have plans and ideas, but I really have to, to stay in the moment. And then I have to be able to read the moment to see what's actually shaping and what's not. Mm-hmm. So I kind of go in with a thousand questions and then we can all feel it when something lands. Hmm. It's like, I want to throw a big party immediately because I'm like, okay, we just got an anchoring moment. We just found something that is moving all of us or that is working compositionally or the story is coming through. Cause I very much work like a sculptor. I don't put my pen on the page and start making the lines and the shapes. I really mold the clay or hmm. chip away at it and allow the forms to start revealing themselves. So I don't really go into it with the idea of, I know what I'm going to do and I know what I want. Now I have that voice in my head. (laughs) It's the voice where I take notes to prepare for rehearsal, but I try not to bring that piece of paper with me Hmm. into the studio because I want, I want the dance to come through me. I want to feel like an open vessel and I want the dance to pass through the dancers too, like that. So I try not to impose too much but at the same time, I kind of have a clear idea of, of knowing when things are working and when things feel like something, I guess, that I'll share that stayed with me forever. And I think other people have said this before, but the first time I heard it was from a wonderful teacher and mentor, Terry O'Connor, who I called desperately in a panic for advice when I first moved to New York and my first show was Justin's Church. He was like, how did you do that? I was like, man, I don't know, but I'm going to need your help. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I, you know, I'm a Virgo, so I do make lists, <laughs> lots of lists. So I'm reading him my list about what the piece is going to be about this, that, and the other. And he finally said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I was like, okay, I've got my pen, Terry. Like, wait, I'm going to write it down. He's like, I want you to rip that up and throw it away. Because if you can say it, why is it a dance? And that just hit me. That just hit me. And it has stayed with me forever. And if anything, that's maybe one of the challenges that I've taken on with the Bamboo Wind Project is this is a project inspired from the written word. It's inspired from a poem. So I'm kind of bumping up against that a bit because there's no need to make a telling of a telling of a telling. So in some ways, we've had to be our own antagonists and reevaluate what our initial instincts and impulses are anyways. So it's been it's been a challenge. And I think where we end up will not be where people will think we might end up. Mm. So 
we're surprising ourselves along the way too. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much Thank for you. this conversation. I can't wait to see the next thing you all do. Thank you so much. And now it's time for a question from a listener on Ask the Soapbox. Dear Soapy, I recently tried to get a street theater performance project off the ground, only to learn that very few people had time or were interested. Someone asked me who my community of interest was for this kind of work, and I realized that I don't have one yet. My question is, how do you cultivate communities of interest, especially for artistic work that may be unfamiliar to people? How do you start? What does it look like? Perhaps you could put this question out to the Soapbox Network in some way. I'd love to hear responses, however broad. Here's more info in case it helps. I'm not a Raleigh native, but I've been here off and on for 10 years. I know folks in the local theater and improv scenes, but I don't have a super tight network like some long-working theater folk do. I have a small applied theater company, and we strive to do work that uses theater as a tool for community building, social justice, and education. We have only done one project so far. Still looking to cultivate community. Thanks, Community Seeker. So first of all, listeners, if you have suggestions for Community Seeker, then send them my way. I'll share your suggestions publicly so that Community Seeker can see them, and for the benefit of others who might have the same question. Oh, Community Seeker, this is a hard nut to crack. People are so busy, right? And there are so many opportunities for people to choose from. I have a few suggestions for you to try. Maybe they're a little out there. Um, But see how this grabs you. I'm going to say that building community is about narrowing down specificity and persistence. First of all, the community that you're saying you want to cultivate seems very broad. If you're targeting people who want to use theater as a tool for community building, social justice, and education, very few people will feel comfortable identifying with all of those categories. So I suggest choosing one of those areas to focus on, and then niche down within that area, and then get really specific about a project. So for example, if it's education, then perhaps your focus is teaching adults who have recently retired how to perform vignettes from their life story on their birthday. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you target that group or do that project. I'm just really suggesting that you narrow down your focus. That way, You're targeting your audience, and you're targeting the type of theater makers who'd like to do that specific type of work. By narrowing your focus, you're not cutting yourself off from opportunities. You're allowing the people who want to do that work to surface. Second, once you have that specificity down, then you can do two things. You can reach out to specific people within that focus area and reach out to people you already know with that detailed information. So again, for example, if you're focusing on voters' rights, then you can connect with local groups that have that mission and run your idea by them or ask if they'd consider a proposal to support a project. By connect, I mean an email to a specific person with a follow-up phone call and even better, an introduction to that person by someone you already know. Building community is a brick-by-brick experience, one person at a time, and you usually need to reach out to individuals and very directly ask them, will you collaborate with me on this project? 
This is definitely the case with strangers, but it's also the case with people you already know. Send personalized emails to individuals with specific information about your project, the timeline, the commitment, and how or why you'd like to work with them. Ideally, you'd also give folks a lot of lead time and pay them even if it's just a little. Do not put out a general call. As you mentioned, this is work that people are unfamiliar with, so it's not like a casting call for a traditional play. A general call will often yield you crickets. Third, if you aren't getting any traction, then perhaps ask your network for suggestions. And be very specific. Send each person in your network the parameters of your project and then ask that person for two to three names of other people who might be interested. You want to ask people who are in the mix of seeing lots of other potential artists for you to work with. So teachers, professors, directors, artistic directors, community leaders, all of those people are good to ask for suggestions. And if you ask your network and they don't respond at all, then don't take it personally. They're just really busy. So try someone else and then someone else and then someone else. I also actually strongly encourage you to look outside the quote, established theater community, and consider people who are curious, but maybe unseasoned performers, or people who want to be involved in something creative, but don't have the time for a huge commitment. So maybe people who want to dip a toe into this work, people who don't identify as an artist, but do identify as an educator or as an activist, people who are transitioning out of undergrad or into retirement, stay-at-home parents, people you meet in an improv class who've only taken one improv class. If you're feeling challenged cultivating a community from the artists who already exist here, then perhaps you cultivate new artists and they become your community. Because I know you can teach people how to do this work, and then they'll bring their gifts to it also. And finally, keep putting yourself out there with confidence blog posts, Facebook posts, tweets, Instagram posts, networking events, workshops, project proposals, grant proposals, whatever. Keep showing up. Keep showing your face, peddling your knowledge, spreading the word about what you do. People need to hear it over and over again before they actually listen because there's a lot of noise and because we're all so busy. Now, I know all of this takes a lot of time and a lot of work. It's a lot more than we want it to. And it's discouraging sometimes to feel like no one wants to do a project with you. I felt like that. I still feel like that. But I don't think that's accurate. You'll find your people. Keep plugging away and try not to take it personally. When you've built your community person by person, I know you'll treasure them and they will treasure you. I hope that's helpful. Community seeker, let me know how it goes. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. To support the podcast, please share this episode with your friends and donate to the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. Artist Soapbox theme music by Bart Matthews. For more information, see our website, artistsoapbox.org, and we're out. We'll be right back.